Okay, what is the joke that we have for starting today's episode? I think the joke is just, we're back. That we are back. It's, it's finally happened. <laughs> yes, yes. We're finally back. We have been quite busy lately. Just, just a little bit. <laughs> just, you know, just the thesis and proposals. Proposals and, yeah, and just... time, telescope and events and life. Yes, we can't have all fun all the time, unfortunately, but I guess it's kind of a Reverse joke, because, ha, we're back. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, the real reason we don't have a good joke, it is because we have been fighting with technology for the last hour and a half. It's been, it's been a trying time. <coughs> we pushed through for you guys. <laughs> we needed this to happen. Yeah, and it is happening. So we are here. And it is officially our season three starting. Yay! Yuppie! <laughs> I'm Angel Lopez Sanchez. And I'm Kirsten Banks. And, and we, we are, are the Scientists. Yes, you, you. We're still here, guys. Don't worry. We haven't. We haven't run off on you. We are back officially, where we both have more time to come in, sit down, and talk about space just for you guys. And I'm so glad that we're back. Yes, finally, because really, I, I cannot think about just how much time I have been. Oh, a pity we should be talking about this very exciting news mm. and another this craziness that has happened in the media and the other thing that would have been a great topic for the scientists. So many things that have happened in the but last six so months. So many things were also happening. <laughs> yeah, because here you have big news. I do have big news. I have finished my thesis. See, you can... You can See, see if you can guess how many pages it is. Plenty of pages for her honor thesis. Because the other big news is for you... I've already been accepted into a PhD program. Yoo-hoo! Yes! That is amazing news. I'm so it's... happy that you are doing that. Although, as I told you the last time that uh, we met together in another of these events, and that was for National Science Week mm. in August, long time ago. Long time ago. I told you, ah, if I were you, I mean, it's going to happen. They are going to give you. <laughs> it would have, it would have been crazy if they didn't. Yeah, but be, let's, let's be honest. You, you had everything in place to be able to start uh, next year. Next year, yes. I'll be starting in uh, mid February next year, and I'll be at UNSW for a bit longer, for about four years, working with Associate Professor Sarah Martell, looking at stars in the Milky Way galaxy and using astro seismology, which is. Mm -hmm. Very exciting, and I look forward to learning more about it and telling you all more about wow, it. Wow, that is a very interesting and hot topic at the moment, very I would say. And also a bit of a jump with respect to your thesis. A little bit, yes, but a big jump from my honours thesis because honours was all about galaxies, mm -hmm. which we will be talking about for today's episode. So we'll get to that main topic very soon. thought we'd do a bit of a, uh, a recap of season two now that we've started season three a little bit later. Yeah, I think it is a good idea because we have been uh, discussing plenty of interesting topics during season two, mm. and some of them can be, I will say, a bit updated with some big news, yes. um, complaints, <coughs> <coughs> we will get there, yep. and uh, recommendations and suggestions for our end. Especially going into the Christmas period 
exactly. Very soon. So I have here the master list of our episodes for the Scientist, starting in number 13, Season Wars. That was the beginning of our Season 2. That's right. That we, we, were... had the, we had the, <laughs> the internal fight between astronomers and the rest of the world somehow about where do seasons start, which, by the way... It's not summer yet, guys. No, it is not. Here in the Southern Hemisphere, we are still in a spring. Anyway, we're not going to complain anymore about that. Because you, you can listen to us complain about that in that episode. In that episode, in that episode. And that is particularly interesting here in Australia and in New Zealand because they are considering officially meteorological seasons and then the season that is starting at the beginning of, of the month and not in the equinox season or in the salty season. Right. That is weird, believe me. Um, then we were talking about uh, Halloween astronomy, episode 14. Just Halloween? A bit. Goodness, yeah. that wouldn't have you been remember. that much long ago then. Yeah, but um, uh, I have something related to that for later. Oh. Then, number 15, asteroid attack. Asteroid attack, that's right. We had some meteor showers. Uh, did we? Yeah, yeah. Did uh, we? And we, we were just discussing about yeah the the, the a bit of uh, the Leonids probably we mm -hmm. were talking, but also about the difference between asteroids and transneptunian objects, and the comets and so on. And even we were discussing a bit more about um, the characteristics of uh, dwarf planets. Mm. And and that is why we can update a little thing because this this month or at the very end of. And we are actually now in December, so it was actually at the end of October, beginning of November. Mm -hmm. There were some news from uh, data obtained with uh, the instrument Sphere that this is installed in one of the units of the very large telescope in uh, in Chile, in uh -huh. the Paranal Observatory of the European Southern Observatory. And they were observing a very interesting object that is the fifth largest asteroid um, that is called Igea. Igea was the daughter of Esculapio, the god of the medicine and so on. Oh, okay. And the word hygiene mm -hmm. of having things clean comes from Igea, from oh, the daughter. That's really cool. Well, so it's, it's the clean asteroid. It is the clean <laughs> asteroid, but it might also be a dwarf planet. Oh, that's exciting. Yeah, that was the news because they found using this uh, instrument that is quite spherical, very much spherical. Ooh, and that is, of course, one of the rules. One of the rules for, for something to be called a planet or a dwarf planet. A dwarf planet. planet. So mm. you have to have this uh, hydrostatical equilibrium, meaning mm. that you have to have a sphere-like mm. body. Exactly. But still it is a bit of controversial. You Ooh. see? Oh, we always like controversy. Yeah, big, big, um, it is interesting that the other two asteroids, so we have theories that we know for sure it is a dwarf planet yep. in the way we are classifying that. And then we have uh, Vesta and Juno, the other oh, two, two asteroids. And any. realize that Juno was also an asteroid and not just. Juno, the asteroid, yes. There is a Juno asteroid and ah. Juno a spacecraft. Well, there you go. The more you know. The third asteroid discovered was Juno. Juno and is the, Jupiter's wife. So um, I've heard that there's a really funny thing about, because they sent Juno the spacecraft to Jupiter, where Juno is Jupiter's wife, and all of the moons are named after Jupiter's concubines. <laughs> Juno to, you know, check on Jupiter, so which is pretty funny. Three Juno mm -hmm. is definitely an asteroid that was discovered on the 1st of September 1804 by Carl Ledwig Harding. 
and uh, the name is the highest Roman goddess. Yes. 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 You are completely right. There we go. Yes. <laughs> anyway, the controversy it is that this asteroid should not be spherical. Oh. Should it be spherical? Because it is relatively small and we should not expect this kind of an object to be spherical. Uh, mm. It's only half... 430 kilometers, which is not... Oh, that is very small. It is a small, still, okay. I think I said before that it was the fifth asteroid. It's actually the fourth largest oh. asteroid. But in the very same paper where they were discussing the observations, so they were also doing some uh, numerical simulations about how this asteroid could have had the shape that it has today. Yeah. And the most accepted way of understanding that it is considering that around 2 billion years ago another large asteroid between 75 and 150 kilometers in diameter collided with this asteroid with mm. Aegea and that collision destroyed the majority of the asteroid yep. but because of the the little all the all the little remainings of the debris that were around Many of them were moving to a different part of, of the asteroid of the asteroid belt, mm -hmm. but they, when they were falling back into Aegea, that created that it was more or less spherical. Oh, okay. So, so it was from the leftover debris that kind of collated back together again that made it a bit spherical. Exactly. So and surprising that it hadn't had any other impacts since then, even small impacts to make it a yeah, bit bumpier. Yeah, they it would have had. It, it is still plenty. It has, still has plenty of impact craters mm. but not big enough. Not big enough for, to make it non-spherical. Exactly. Wow. So then is the observation that it is a spherical object a consequence of the dwarf planet of the system or the asteroid being in hydrostatical equilibrium? Mm, no. no. Meaning that then Probably you, not. You cannot classify it as a dwarf planet. Yes. Of course, in media, in the media, the sixth dwarf planet is covered in our solar <laughs> system. And, and it was funny because it was discovered. I mean, Ihea was discovered in 1849. Yes, so, almost 200 years ago, guys. <laughs> <laughs> so we have known this asteroid for a while. Anyway, coming back to the list of episodes that we recorded in season two, after Asteroid Attack, we have episode 16, Rendezvous with Yakutake. And in that one was the real episode in where we discussed, in a bit of depth, comets. Yes. And a bit of the external part of the solar mm. system. Do we have any bright comets at the moment? No. I don't think so. No, they're comets. You but might, you might see some. Some few of them, yeah. but not, not many. Number 17, landing on Mars. That was a fun one. Mm, yes, I remember going through the list of all the failed and successes of yeah, like landing yeah, on Mars. Yeah, yeah, Well, we were just talking about Mars in that long episode. It was an hour long. Ooh. And then we have number 18, telescopes and apps. Yes, which is very important, especially for now coming into the Christmas season. If you're thinking of buying your loved ones a telescope, we would definitely recommend going and listening to that episode to... Uh, get a few tips and tricks on what you should be looking for, what sort of telescopes you want to use for planets, stars, or if you want to go a bit more intense. Mm -hmm, definitely. I cannot help myself, so I'm going to say a couple of extra things here. First, remember, don't pay attention to the magnification. 
Yes, because so that's never. a fake number. So it is just that when you see something or you see in, 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 in the mall, uh, oh, this is a small telescope, it has 300 eggs and run away. <laughs> just run away because they are, you are not going to see anything with that. That is the first thing. The second thing will be that the bigger the lens of the mirror, the better yes. will be. The telescope, of course, because at the end of the day, a telescope is just collecting the light. That we it's get like a from... big light bucket. And there are two extra things that I want to say. One, please get an eyepiece that is good. At least one. Mm. Because usually, and that is even from for very good telescopes, when you get in the store, in professional stores, the eyepieces usually don't have too much quality. Mm. And they are more thinking about getting a bit of extra magnification that the magnification you should get. Yes, and that's the thing to point out too, is that the eyepiece is actually what gives you the quote-unquote magnification. The magnification, yes, definitely. So I have been recommending, particularly in the last few weeks, because we have been talking to some different people that have asked us about what kind of telescope should we get. Besides thinking about getting the telescope, please, please, please spend... 20% 20% of your budget that you have for your telescope for getting a low magnification eyepiece. Mm. Ideally, something between 40 millimeters and 25 millimeters, 40, 32, 25, one of those, because that is going to be a game changer Ooh. for your telescope. Believe me, that is a must. So it is better having a small telescope, but with a good eyepiece that you can see things Mm. even though you don't have too much magnification. And at the end of the day, we don't want and we don't need that much magnification unless we are observing planets and the moon. Mm -hmm. And you will be rewarded. If you get one, you will see it. We cannot stress. I'm looking at Antel right here. He's like, I cannot stress this enough. (laughs) Do it. Please, please follow me and do it. If you already have a telescope, but you don't have an eyepiece between 40 millimeters and 32 millimeters, please buy one for Christmas this year. My second point, it is that you can contact with your local amateur association. Mm-hmm. Yes. That would be also very good. They are always very keen to provide for the feedback and suggestions. And you can join them in their amateur observations and you can even test and try different kind of telescopes and see what is the best that suits you or answer all the questions that you have about telescopes. That is also a very good idea. Just please don't go to the shopping center and get one of these small, cheap, bad telescopes with 300 eggs. Don't go to the the general like science stores. Go to a telescope store. Yeah, because then you are going to be very disappointed about the result. And then you will probably say, ah, astronomy is just, ah, I don't want to know anything about astronomy. When actually it is a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful science. So many great things to do. Good. So um, continuing with the list of episodes in season two, we then had a Planet Up episode 19. That was another fun episode talking about how we detect exoplanets. Oh, yes. Yeah, around other stars and so on. So the list right now, I do have it here. It is updated the 2nd of December 2019. That was yesterday for Mm -hmm. us. 4,139 exoplanets have been discovered around other stars. That's pretty good. Mm -hmm. That's a lot of exoplanets. 
And one of those exoplanets was this one that was in the media in September. Which was supposedly habitable. The classic super-Earth. Sounds like Earth, so it must be good. It must be a place we could go to. But alas, no. No. <laughs> so the planet name, it is K218V. So that is, uh, it was detected by the Kepler mission by NASA in the extended uh, mission. That is why it is K2, mm-hmm. the number 18, to be discovered. Um, it is at around 110 light years away from us. And it is interesting because we know that it is a planet that is just a bit bigger than the Earth, around 8.6 times more massive, although only 2.7 times larger in diameter. Yes. So with these characteristics, we are moving in the very vague regime between what we call the Mm super-Earth and also the mini-Neptunes. True. So it is actually there. So the news was that a group of astronomers, actually two independently, two groups of astronomers discovered and reported water vapor Mm -hmm. in the atmosphere of this exoplanet. Which is very exciting. This has never been done before. Uh, So super exciting. It it was very exciting. Like it's it's hard enough to look at planet uh, the atmospheres of planets in our solar system, but to look at the atmospheres of planets in other star systems mm-hmm. is de- very, very difficult. And detecting water. And detecting water, water as well. Very, time. very difficult stuff. So, so very that, exciting. That is the news. But, of course, the media got this as we found Earth 2.0. Yes. It was all the way around. It was absolutely crazy. But, interestingly, as we were saying a moment ago, this planet is just between those regimes, between being a super-Earth and a mini-Neptune. And considering the information that we have, probably it is a mini-Neptune. Right. And not a super-Earth. There you go. There was another factor there. The other factor was that this object was in the habitable zone. Yes. Around so the star. So, like, super-Earth in the habitable zone. It must be great. It With must water be great in the atmosphere. Yeah, so, it rains yeah, water. Like, nope. We found another Earth planet. No. It was I, very funny, actually. I no. saw this thread on Twitter where someone had asked uh, Dr. Kyle, hmm. could we, you know, stand on this planet if it were, like, a solid solid surface for us to stand on? Like, would we be crushed by the gravity? And someone quoted in a article that it would be, like, Thousands of times the t- the gravity of the Earth. Like, yeah, actually, oh, I like, hold on. No, 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 no. Let, let me let me do some physics here <laughs> and figure this out. And it turns out it would only be about twenty percent stronger. The gravity, the acceleration due yes. to gravity, will only be twenty mm-hmm. percent stronger because it's due to the mass and, and the radius. The radius. But the other thing that we have to consider here it is if we are talking about or thinking about a planet like the Earth, where you have the atmosphere and then the solid part, the lithosphere, mm. if we are thinking about, okay, go, go to the lithosphere and you have the atmosphere on top of you, mm-hmm. surrounding you, if you try to do this in this uh, exoplanet in K218V, and it is actually a mini-Neptune, more or less, that is what it seems, the inner part of that object will have a very, very, very strong atmospheric pressure. Yes. And also temperature yeah. because of that. So the temperature of that object, of that lithosphere, if it sits mm-hmm. in and this exoplanet, will be around 2700 degrees. 
Oh. Just in the surface, if we can say that, we couldn't. I think that we cannot say surface, but it could be. So yeah. that's a number. Hypothetically, if there were a surface there. Yeah. And on top of that, the atmospheric pressure will be around 10,000 times the atmospheric pressure that we have on here on Earth. So <laughs> I'm not going there. <laughs> and many people in the media were saying, we are going to visit that. We can forget about the Earth that is a disaster with all the things that are happening. Yeah. And we go there to this Earth 2.0. Okay, There's yes, please. No, no easy fix. Go for you. This is why I like to go in and talk about these things to just like set the record straight. Like, no, 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 it's, it's, it's still a very exciting discovery. But don't get your hopes up about going to this planet no please no 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 so please be aware of this news every time that they are released by by media just try to get uh, the feedback from the experts yes and even here i'm not saying that i'm an expert in exoplanets because i'm not i'm just uh, an astronomer who is interested about everything but my (laughs) speciality is galaxies and star formation in galaxies but at least i have a basic knowledge that allows me to say, hey, perhaps This no. doesn't check out. <laughs> perhaps no. Let's continue because after that, we go to episode 20, Fly Me to the Moon. Mm-hmm. That was another good one. Just, another very good one. Just talking about different aspects of the moon and the moon exploration. Number 21, Pursuing New Horizons. Just talking again a bit more about the external radiance of the solar system mm. using Pluto and as example and talking about this fantastic mission. Oh, because didn't it? It went to, what was it? The, ah, ast- ah, the, asteroid, yeah. the, the blobby asteroid, the yes, thing that looked yes, like a yes, the BB-8. <laughs> so it, it was Ultima Thule. That's it, yes. Ultima Thule, the official uh, name was 2014 MU69. Yes. Because it was discovered in 2014 and it was a perfect target for uh, the spacecraft New Horizon to get there. They put this uh, nickname, uh, Ultima Thule, that plenty of people were using. We were saying that perhaps no. There was some controversy there too. And finally, uh, last month, the International Astronomical Union approved the official name of this object. Ooh. And it is Arrokoth. That sounds so powerful. <laughs> <laughs> Arrokoth. Arrokoth. It seems that it means sky in the Powhatan language. Oh, lovely. Um, Powhatan language of the Tidewater region of Virginia and Maryland. That's lovely. I like that. I really like that. I think to remember that that is because, uh, well, it was actually proposed by the team of the New Horizons. Mm-hmm. Because Ultima Thule... It's kind of like their object. Uh, yeah, but, but I mean, it didn't comply with the regulation of the International Astronomical Union. Yeah. It have to be in some way. Mm-hmm. And also, there is a kind of tradition for naming uh, objects in the sky that try to be related to the culture from where the discovery have been made. Oh, okay. Arrokoth was the discovered mainly using data of the Hubble Space Telescope. Mm-hmm. And the Hubble Space Telescope... Center with the Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Laboratory, they are both based in Maryland. Right. That is the place where the Powhatan people lived. I think that that is the same tribe that was with Pocahontas okay. in the same region. In, okay. I, th- I think it's, I might be wrong again, but I think it is. Cool. So, well, we have official name have for... Official name, Arakoth. Arakoth. Meaning sky. After that, episode 22, we were talking about Harvard computers. 
Yes, the women in astronomy. Yeah, women in astronomy. The, the real that, astronomers from back in the day. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so that was an episode considering the International Day of the Women and Girls in Science yes. at the beginning of February. Um, yes, please go go and have a look to that because we were talking about plenty of amazing women astronomers mm. that have done many things for our understanding of the cosmos as it is now. So go there. After that, episode 23, A Shadow of Darkness. Oh. And that was the discovery, not the discovery, but the very first oh, observations right. of the black hole. Or the black hole. Ah. Or the silhouette or the shadow of a very massive black hole in the center of the galaxy M87. It's very exciting. Very exciting. And probably, Still exciting today. Yeah, that, that is, I'm going to say that, the astronomical news of the year. I back that. that yep. That is going to be that. I definitely back it's that. It's definitely that. Number 24 will be Astro Bookworms. Ah, uh, yes, discussing. we went through our favorite books, astronomy mm-hmm. books. Yeah. So if you want to have a bit of an extra idea for this period of time that yep. we are also Some giving plenty of gifts, yep. then go and... Um, Gift and li- uh, an astronomy book. Yep. Listen to that episode, number 24. That was at around mm, April of May. Mm-hmm. Because the next one, it is number 25, A Sip of Science. That's right. <laughs> we did we did A Sip of Science because we were the hosts of Pint of Science. Mm-hmm. Mm, that was good in, fun. Here in Sydney, and we had a lot of fun. So it was another kind of a special episode with some interviews that we yes. had to Devika Kamath, here lecturer at Astronomy and Astrophysics at Macquarie University, and Sarah Reeves, Assistant Curator of Museum Applied Arts and Sciences and Powerhouse Museum here in Sydney too. So it was interesting to be talking to these fantastic mm. women. Number 26, I don't know what we are going to do here. Number 26, Twinkle Twinkle Little Satellite. Yes, this way, if you if you want to hear us have a good rant, listen to that episode. And we have some updates on that too. Ah, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. I don't know it's, where to start. Yes. So I, I, no, I, I think I'll start just saying more have gone up. Lots of people are getting footage of these things in the sky. And oh my goodness, I saw a video of a meteor shower with the Starlink satellites. And I could not tell where the meteors were. Yes, it was very upsetting. Very upsetting. And that indeed. is only the second launch. Only the second launch. There's and still was the thousands left to go. And they are still very bright. They are. Two, one, one and a half, two, two and a half magnitude, which mm. is just Polaris star. For example, it is around that magnitude, two, exactly. two and a half. For, for a reference as well, like the, the faintest magnitude humans on average can see is down to magnitude six. Yes. And how does man- how do magnitudes work? They it's it's brighter when you get lower. So I think a magnitude around two will probably be a couple times as bright uh, as a magnitude six. Well, it is always a bit tricky to do this with the magnitudes because there is a log and a two point five factor. But if I remember properly, a star with a magnitude six will be around forty times fainter that a star of magnitude 2. Uh, I'm no. moving fast in the skies. Um, I, I saw another interesting plot about people looking for UFOs oh, really? in Google. So every time that SpaceX have launched one of these Space Link mm. satellites, and 60 in each launch, 
there have been an increasing number of UFO searches sighting? of searching searches, searches <laughs> for, for UFOs. How to detect Elon UFOs. Musk is fueling the UFO controversy. Yeah, um, and it is not only that. As we discussed in that episode, that we were actually having another interview with uh, Kyla Kuhn, the mm. deputy director of technology at Lower Observatory, and that have been also checking and following that issue. It is for professional astronomers, for amateur astronomers, for the general public. And, and professional astronomers, we are all very worried, not only optical astronomers, the people who are using the standard telescopes to get mm. photos, and people, for example, now the LSTT. Large Synoptic Survey Telescope. Thank you. LSTT mm -hmm. is going to be uh, operational very soon. And plenty of these images are going to be affected. Actually, the majority of them, I think two thirds of them are going to be affected, yeah. something like that. But it is not only that, because they're going also to be affecting radio astronomy. What? Yeah. And, oh. and we still don't have an actual measure of how much that is going to be. Because that, that's not a problem of brightness. That's a problem of signatures. Exactly. It is a oh, problem no. of the way that they transmit and emit the signal. Yay. Okay, well... Um, so listen to that for a rant. We're just going to move yeah, on, because no, 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 otherwise we'll talk about this for hours. Um, from here, I'm saying that we will very probably talk a bit more about this issue in a future episode. Mm. Very probably. I wish I will not have to say this, but unfortunately, that is the way it is. Okay, and the last episode of the season, number 27, Cosmology 101. Yeah, we had lots of fun with Cosmology 101. Mm -hmm. Just a bit of a general discussion about how we understand the very large scale of the universe, the beginning of the cosmos, mm. the different components, the baryonic matter, the dark matter, the right. dark energy, so, and doing the joke that we astronomers, when we don't know something, we put dark. <laughs> dark. And that is the dark. Yep. Good. And I think that after almost half an hour talking, <laughs> um, it would be convenient to start with the main topic of yes. this episode. So We're back I'm... into season three, and we thought we'd start since I've you know finished an entire thesis. Thought I'd talk about it. Yeah. So yeah. I'm going just to listen to the wonderful things that Kirsten is going to be discussing and talking. What have you done for your honor What have thesis? I been doing for the last nine months? Well, for the last nine months, I've been working with Associate Professor Sarah Broff, investigating the merging potential of brightest cluster galaxies, mm -hmm. or BCGs for short, okay. or as I like to describe it, a tale of galactic cannibalism. A tale of galactic cannibalism. Mm -hmm. I like that one. It's good. And yeah. you, you'll see why I've called it that. And I'll, I'll wrap it up at the end and come back to it. So before before you go further, Sarah is a, a very good friend and a colleague of mine. She mm. was first working here at the AO when uh, we met some few years ago, actually a decade ago or something like that. Oh, come on. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and now she is a uh, associate professor too. Yes, professor at, at, at UNSW. UNSW. But she's also actually been uh, promoted to professor. Wow. So as of uh, the 1st of January 2020, she will be Professor wow. Sarah Braff. So that I'm very excited, very is, happy for her. That is amazing. Mm. Well done. Congratulations, Sarah. Yes. Very good, very good. So yes, yeah, so I've been working with her investigating the merging potential of brightest cluster galaxies in the local universe, which 
the, the local universe can be a bit arbitrary sometimes. So we've described it in my thesis as anything with redshifts less than one. What okay. do you, what, what's your so opinion? That, that is the local universe for you. Yes. Okay, well, that is very different to the local universe that I'm usually considering. What do you consider the local universe? No, but I mean, when I'm talking about the local universe, I first start with what we call the local volume, which is okay. a sphere of around 10 megaparsecs that is in light year 33. 30, 33, 33 light years. 33 million light million. years. Million. Okay. 33, 33 million, million light years. Gotcha. That's really so close. That is not even not getting even anywhere into, close. into the Virgo cluster. That's right. So if we expand till more or less the distances of the Virgo cluster, that's around 55, 60 million light years, mm -hmm. it is what I usually consider the local universe. Right. So it's, it's very the, interesting the, to see who considers what to be local. Yeah. Basically, at the beginning of the year, we set out to investigate the potential stellar mass growth of brightest cluster galaxies, or BCGs, so I'll call them BCGs from now on. So, uh, And they come from the accretion of stellar mass from their nearest neighbouring galaxies. Mm -hmm. So over the year, we investigated the stellar mass growth of BCGs with respect to redshift, which is a measurement of distance, as well as time. So when we're looking at different redshifts, we're looking at things that are further away as redshift increases, but we're also looking at these things at a different snapshot in the universe because, of course, we have this cosmic speed limit that allows us to look back in time. Yeah, that is something very powerful that we have in astronomy. It's perhaps sometimes we or someone can think about that it is a limitation, but at the end of the day, it is helping astronomers a lot. It really is. To, to understand galaxy evolution, how our universe have been changing and evolving through the cosmic time. Because mm. if we are seeing farther away, we are seeing things that are older and older and older in time. That's right. That's so right, we didn't indeed. say actually, so if you are considering the local universe till redshift one, mm -hmm. in a distance, more or less, how much is that? Do you know? Oh, uh, what's redshift one? Redshift one is... Might be something like some few billion like definitely a few billion so we ended up looking at galaxies uh with redshifts up to 0 0.23 mm -hmm. which is about five billion uh light years away five billion five billion and that yeah. is 0 0.23 0 0.23 okay and then <laughs> yeah a i think to remember perhaps it was around seven eight seven or billion eight that sounds about right light years yeah of course for determining the the real distance to these objects Considering only the redshift, you have to consider a model of the universe. You, you do. You have to consider some parameters yes. that we were discussing in Cosmology 101. Yes. Uh, but we also wanted to look at the dependence on the environment surrounding these BCGs, which is analogous to the halo mass of the host cluster. So BCGs, they exist in really large galaxy clusters, and these are kind of governed by huge dark matter halos. And so it's that halo that we're looking mm -hmm. at that's the environment that we're looking at in terms of the uh, the bcg and its host cluster because these are really big objects these are huge these are some of the most massive most massive structures in the entire universe exactly right uh but <laughs> at the start of the year we saw that there's uh, significant discrepancies within the literature regarding the stellar mass buildup of bcgs so we wanted to investigate that and try and you know get a bit of a better idea mm -hmm. about this. Also, models of the universe, they generally predict a significantly faster growth rate than what, it than what is observed by optical studies. So we wanted to 
have a look at the discrepancy between there, see if we can bring them together, see if they agree, see if they don't agree with whatever yeah, I, we I, find. I, I want to emphasize something uh, what you have said just to be sure that everyone is getting that, how important it is. So we have equations and we have the physics and that reminds me that we didn't mention the Nobel Prize in physics. But anyway, we have the mm. equations that are able to explain the evolution of the universe. Yes. Um, but at the end of the day, these are models mm. that have to be tested. And we need the observations to really constrain those models to see if they are doing it well or if there are some factors or some things that are predicted by the models that what we are observing is not exactly that. That's right. And when that happens, it is very interesting because that means that we can do the fine-tuning of our model or even perhaps we cannot predict that with the model. And we need to develop a complete new model to explain that. That's right. There were some significant discrepancies between the models and the observations, so we went out to figure out what's going on. But there's also disagreement regarding what actually drives the stellar mass growth of BCGs, whether it's minor mergers or major mergers. So I'll come back a little bit later and talk about how those two are different, but essentially we're looking at the stellar mass growth due to these big galaxies merging with their nearest neighboring galaxies. Mm -hmm. Yes. As long as I have considered minor mergers, consider when you have galaxy and you have uh, the collision or a merger of a little dwarf galaxy. At least, yes, yeah, significantly smaller, mm -hmm. um, less massive. But when you have a major merger, the two galaxies that are colliding, they're more or less the same mass. That's right. Yes. So galaxy evolution is dictated by their change in stellar mass. Okay, you know this, of course, mm -hmm, as yeah. a galaxy man yourself. And this can be growth by star formation, which is what you study, or growth to due to the accretion of stellar mass from mergers with other galaxies. So galaxies generally exist in large clusters, like the Abel 1689 cluster, which I recommend having a look at. It's really pretty. You can see these beautiful arcs. Inside there too, which is an effect of gravitational, gravitational lensing. Yes. So that's another very, really cool thing. Very famous image by Hubble. Very Space famous Telescope. image indeed. So as galaxies move around the cluster, they slow down and fall to the center of the potential well, mm -hmm. okay, where most of the mass is. So usually at the centers of massive clusters, they host the brightest galaxy of the cluster, which is of course appropriately known as the brightest cluster galaxy. For making a kind of an analogy, could be M87 the brightest galaxy in the Virgo cluster to be considered a bright cluster galaxy? In fact, indeed, in my presentation that I had to do at the end of the year, I actually gave a close-up of M87 because it is indeed the brightest galaxy cluster of that cluster. Okay. And one of the biggest and most massive BCGs as well known in the universe. And of course, just for reference, M87, M87 star... We had the link between the galaxy and, and the, the black, black hole. hole in the center. That's right. Good. That is important also because mm, I think that perhaps it is much more common for people that they have seen these images with the with M87 and plenty of the Virgo galaxies around there. For example, that one. Yeah, that one. <laughs> that image. Um, Kirsten is showing me I've got a beautiful Hubble image here. And that is a really nice visualization of what can, this kind of structures that we are discussing and that... Uh, Kirsten have been studying That's for right. her honor thesis. That's right. So 
due to the prime location at the centre of massive clusters, okay, so galaxies are moving around, they're falling towards the centre, they do experience, or generally they experience a lot more mergers than any other typical galaxy. Okay, so that's why it's because of this characteristic that they're a desirable target for the study of galaxy evolution, the BCGs, because mm-hmm. they experience more mergers than usual. So there's kind of a background on BCGs and whatnot and galaxy clusters, a little background. So let's go on to the data that I used for this project. And I'm very excited about this because I actually used data from the Anglo-Australian Telescope that was collected by the Anglo-Australian Telescope. So the data used for the project, it was sourced from the Galaxy and Mass Assembly Survey, or Gamma Survey for short. Mm -hmm. So perhaps, perhaps some of the observations that you have been analyzing, actually, I was the person in charge of getting those data. Possibly. So, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, the Gamma Survey is a multi-wavelength optical galaxy redshift survey that probes the universe up to redshifts of 0.5, which is about 5 billion, billion light years. years. Mm-hmm. So these were spectroscopic observations. Okay, so that's very important for this project, actually, because spectroscopy allows us to very accurately measure the distances to galaxies. We used to only do it using photometry, which is a bit more of a larger uh, error yeah, yeah. uncertainty there. But mm. now we've got a very precise look at the universe. And so it really helps us figure out what's going on properly. And it is not only the accurate distances to galaxies. It is all the properties that we can derive using the spectra That's of right. the galaxies. That's right. From also getting a better estimation of the mass, the star formation, um, the velocity they move, mm. the stellar populations, and the chemical composition, the main, the major chemical composition of, of the stars in the galaxy. That's right. Yeah, so they were obviously taken by the 3.9-metre Anglo-Australian Telescope, and the observations are highly complete, which is a, a very interesting term. I remember sending my thesis off to my mum to read it, and she's like, what, what, does, what does this highly complete mean? This doesn't seem <laughs> logical. This doesn't seem like a proper sentence. I'm like, oh, no, 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 it's a scientific term. It's highly complete, meaning that a lot of the galaxies in the survey have a distance measurement. In fact, 98.5% of the galaxies in the survey have a spectroscopic distance measurement. So that's what it means by being highly complete. Mm-hmm. So it's very, very good to have that. Uh, and one desirable characteristic of the survey is that it's a very deep survey. And by that we mean it has an apparent magnitude limit of 19.8 magnitudes. So it can see down to very, very faint objects. So yes. very, very small galaxies, which allows us to look at the discrepancy between major mergers and minor mergers and look at those smaller galaxy pairs. Mm-hmm. Mm. So yeah, the Gamma survey was conducted at the AAT for five, six years, something, something like, like that, that. Yeah. Uh, between 2009 and 2013 mm-hmm. or 2014, right. something like that. And uh, if I remember on the top of my head, we got data of around, well, no, not around, more than 300,000 galaxies. Yes, 300,000 galaxies uh, and 26,194 identified groups from the grouping algorithm that was used on the data. Mm-hmm. It was very, very cool. Like a huge, huge data set, which I'm sure you've all heard in astronomy, we like big data. And the bigger your survey, the bigger your data set, the more robust it's going to be. 
and and the, the better es, estimate and more statistically significant. That's right. Statistically significant estimates. The only issue, and perhaps we, it would be good to clarify this, it is that we are only observing in a very particular region of the sky. We are not observing yes. all the sky. We are gamma actually observed in five different positions. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think to remember three were more or less in the equatorial three, band. Yeah, three and, equatorial and, regions and, and two others. And two others that were much more interested for particular clusters. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, because other observations in, uh, in ultraviolet, in infrared, in radio, in X-ray, they have already observed that particular area of the sky. That's right. So we're getting, again, a more complete view of these particular galaxies and clusters. So yeah, so I used uh, the galaxy clusters from the equatorial regions. Good. Just for, just for reference. <laughs> um, so essentially, when doing this project, we couldn't quite just use the raw data from Gamma. No. Because there are... There are issues, not not so much issues with it, but there are observational issues in terms of if you have a look at the distribution of stellar mass of these BCGs with respect to redshift, you'll see that for all the galaxies, you don't have the same minimum stellar mass across all redshifts. Mm-hmm. There's also this very interesting feature at about 0.25 redshift where there's just kind of a gap Yep. Of galaxies there. I'm like, <laughs> what's it? What's this gap doing here? This, this, this surely this can't be structure, and that's due to a, a skyline. Yeah, I was going to ask you. You yes, knew about that. I, of course, I knew about that. It's you in ha- my yeah, it's yeah. in my data section you, in you, here somewhere. You have it that very well. <laughs> yes. The so. thing is that as as we are moving away in redshift, that is derived using uh, emission lines, particularly H mm-hmm. alpha in particular, 65, 63 Armstrongs. And if that is starting to go to the red, the red part of the spectrum seen from the Earth, it is very much affected by the atmosphere of the Earth. Mm. Water vapor, uh, oxygen too, uh, some nitrogen too. And there is a very, not very, but it is a relatively wide uh, band at around redshift 0.5, isn't it? 0.25. 0.25, 0.25, that if you are very unlucky and your galaxy it is around there, it is, is very, very difficult to actually detect the emission line from the galaxy because it is very much polluted mm. by the emission of our atmosphere. Yes. So another reason why ground telescopes are great, but space telescopes... Don't have this problem. <laughs> don't have this problem. They have other problems. They don't have this problem. Although I can now mention that uh, we have been working here at the Australian Astronomical Optics for some time in a device for reducing these emission lines ah, of the atmosphere. Fantastic. And, and they have been a prototype that have been having plenty of, of, of issues, but it seems it's going well. So that's particularly important for high resolution in the just almost in the infrared mm-hmm. and there is a system I don't know, don't ask me because I don't know the details I don't remember mm-hmm. the details, but there is a way that they are able to just cut down just these frequencies of the emission lines because these are really, really narrow emission uh, lines, are very yes. narrow. However, because of the instrumental effect that we have with our res- the resolution of our instruments, that usually it is around one Armstrong, mm-hmm. that means that it's going to be not only one, but perhaps even two and a half, three Armstrongs. 
polluted because of a very narrow emission line. Yeah. If you can correct that before get that light before getting into the detector, mm, then, then happy days. Then happy days. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. So that's that's the whole reason why we cut down our sample to, to redshifts below zero point two three because of that emission line there. Uh, we also kind of did a bit of a uh, so essentially what we wanted to do was get a volume limited sample which basically means if you have your distribution of your galaxies and your clusters in a box, you want your distribution to look like a box. Okay, you want everything to be nice and normal, not normal, uniform. Uniform. You want it to be nice mm -hmm. and uniform, okay? So that's what we did. So we made a, a lower stellar mass limit, we made a upper stellar mass limit to get rid of unrealistically large uh, and massive BCGs, where those could have been contaminated by other objects falling into the field of view, like stars, and so making them seem a bit more massive than hmm. what's acceptable. But essentially, we have ended we uh, ended up getting a sample of one thousand two hundred eighty nine clusters with two hundred eighty four close companions. Okay, and now let me tell you what a close companion is. So I mentioned earlier that these BCGs are merging with their nearest neighbors. These are the close companions. And we define them in two ways. So when you're looking at a image of a cluster, and I'll show you the photo on hell while we're here, because I'm really proud of this uh, little uh, nice. figure that I've made. Very nice, with so, nice colors. Very nice colors indeed. Very... BCG in big blue point, and mm -hmm. then companions in green and red points. Oh, so, so the companions are in red points and other ah, yeah. and the other members are, other the members green are in ones. green. So okay, when you look are... when you look at a galaxy cluster on the sky, you can see some of the galaxies can look very close to the BCG. Uh, and so we define close companions. The first definition is that they have to be within fifty kiloparsecs of the BCG, which is oh. multiply three times twenty six. 3.26 times, um, how much did you say? 50, so... 50, so that would be... 150 like kiloparsecs. 150, a bit more, uh, 180, almost so 200. 150 million light a million, years. Okay, no, million, no, light. Uh, um, 150,000, uh, 200,000. Okay. 200,000 light years from the BCG. Yeah, so relatively close. Yeah, relatively, okay, close. relatively close. But... When, you, when you're looking at a galaxy cluster and you see some of these galaxies look physically close, they may not necessarily be close to the BCG. So when you're looking along the line of sight, you're seeing everything that's in that line of sight. So you may have these things called interlopers, mm -hmm. right? and contamination effects from galaxies that could look close, but are actually really far away very, very far in, in redshift. Mm -hmm. So we put a different another constraint on there such that the relative velocity of the galaxy must be within 300 kilometers per second of the BCG. Mm -hmm. So this kind of, what does it do? It, it kind of helps put, you, yeah. yeah. Put puts in perspective that what you are considering it is a close companion. Mm. It is actually a, a close companion. It is actually It's a true there. close companion, that's it, yeah. Also to put a bit of uh, perspective, the size of our Milky Way is 100. 120,000 light years. Mm -hmm. So you are considering there in the first approach around twice the size of the Milky Way? Yeah. 
Yeah, something like that. Yeah. And also the velocity is very similar. So the velocity, the terminal velocity of the Milky Way is around 220, 230 mm-hmm. kilometers per second. Um, you are considering there 300 kilometers per second because, of course, you have a much, much larger galaxy. We do. So yes. that is also why it is a conservative good number for considering objects that are truly genuine close to your galaxy. Mm. And will actually merge within the next couple of billion years, which mm. is... A reasonable time frame, which I'll get to that in a few moments. So now that we've set that all up, we've given you all the background, given you what uh, the data is all about. Let me now show you how or tell you how we did this. Okay, so one of the, the first step required to calculate the potential stellar mass growth of BCGs is to determine the BCG pair fraction. So this is essentially the number of close companions divided by the number of BCGs in the sample. So like what fraction of BCGs actually have a companion galaxy that will merge with it soon. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. And we found about 20%, 20% of our galaxies, 20% of our BCGs have at least one close companion where it could, it, like most of these uh, groups have obviously zero close companions identified. Some have just one. Some had four. Oh, hmm. So some of were quite populated, which is quite interesting to see. And I'd be interested to see what the uh, distribution is of number of close companions versus, yeah, I don't know, maybe yeah, halo yeah. mass or something, mm-hmm. which might be something for further work. But so, yes, we find that about 20% of our galaxies have uh, companions where the majority of these companions are minor companions. That's right. I mean, to double me- mention again, so minor companions are those that are significantly less massive than the BCG, whereas major mergers are those that are about the same size, the same li- size yes. down to about a third the mass mm-hmm. of the BCG, where minor are much, much less. Okay, so yeah, so this is, it's it's dominated by minor merging candidates. Mm-hmm. Okay, so lots of minor mergers around there. Uh, and then we also find that it doesn't really change with redshift, which we wouldn't expect it to, really, especially over this very short redshift range, yeah. too. Mm. Yes, so there we go. Next thing we need to do is, or next thing we did, was to determine the merger rate. So this is the Number of mergers per BCG per giga year, which is per billion years. Okay, so essentially how often are these BCGs experiencing mergers? And uh, most of these were around 0.16 mergers per giga year. So very low. So that will be at around one every eight, nine. A bit less billion? than that. One, one every about six and a half. Six, six and a half. Billion years. Six and a half billion years. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so... Th- yeah, a bit lower. Quite low. Quite have, low. Uh, we'll have expected a bit larger number there. Yeah, you, anyway. you thought, you'd think so too, right? Uh, and uh, this is split evenly between minor and major mergers. Oh. That. So they're experiencing 0.08 minor mergers per giga year and 0.08 major mergers per giga year, which is really interesting. That is interesting. And, and the reason for this uh, for you guys at home is, yes, there were more minor mergers available and more of them just exist but minor mergers occur over a much longer time scale so the time scale of these things to occur it depends on the separation of the galaxies but also it depends on the mass and it's inversely proportional not quite perfectly inversely proportional it's it's proportional to the mass to the power of minus 0.3 okay so okay somewhat inversely proportional <laughs> So 
smaller companions will merge over a much larger time scale. Most of our uh, companions merge within about one and a half billion years, but some had merging timescales of up to four billion years. Oh, okay. Yeah, so that's why it's brought them really close together. That's why they experienced an even, uh, yeah, an even amount of equal amount of minor oh. and major mergers, which is very interesting because that's, that's one of the things that we're trying to, trying to work out. And now we come to the stellar mass growth per giga year, so the stellar mass growth rate. And we find it's very, very small, only about 5%. Like these BCGs, these huge, massive galaxies that are gobbling up their neighbours, are only growing by about 5% of their stellar mass Every billion years. Every billion years. In, these, in this very short redshift range. Really, I was expecting... Well, perhaps because as they are so big and so massive, mm. although they are still creating and they're having these minor and major mergers, still... Well, not major, but mainly minors, I would say. Because in the moment you have something very big, you yes. will get... Which brings me to my next thing, is that this, this growth rate is clearly dominated by major mergers because they do have the most fuel... Hmm to contribute to the stellar mass growth of these big galaxies. That Where miners are just like, eh, this nice little snack, as mm. opposed to a big meal. Mm. That is interesting, mm. yes, definitely. Mm. It might be very well connected, what what we are observing in galaxies in the local, I mean, in the my very local universe, mm-hmm. that when we pay enough attention, we are observing this kind of minor mergers here. When we are talking about minor mergers in this uh, very, very nearby galaxies, the object that is interacting with the main galaxy, it is actually very small. It is a dwarf galaxy, sometimes even just a H1 cloud, a cloud with gas, and we don't see many, many stars, although if we get the spectroscopy, we see stars there, mm-hmm. so it's very faint, very faint objects. And there are many more of those minor mergers, minor interaction, that the major interaction in galaxies in the local, my very local yes. universe too. <laughs> so it seems that you can scale that into the very bright, mm. Cluster galaxies. And these big, big galaxies, yes. And uh, so, of course, with every with every scientific research, you want to compare your results to previous results. And oh, very, very important. Are you excited for this? I am. I'm excited for this. I am. We got excellent agreement <laughs> with other studies. That's good. Oh, That's it was good. so beautiful. Like the most the most beautiful thing for any scientist is to see that their results agree with other results. It's like ah. Oh. We did it right. Yeah. We did it good. Well, so, sometimes it is good to find the disagreement. Yeah. You, that's true. But that's if true. you find the disagreement, then you have to spend a lot of time trying to understand why and to be sure. And you have to convince yourself you do. that it's you all... are not making any mistake in processing and analyzing exactly. your data. Exactly right. But look at that. Look, yeah. look at out. So Very the, nice. So in, it, I'm looking at this plot for our the pair fraction mm-hmm. compared to other results. And all of our dots just line up with every other dot. Basically, yes, yes, it is. It is fantastic. In the same regime, very, the same, very, very nice. And you that's have right. four different point data points there. Mm-hmm. So we, yeah, this is over redshift and, mm-hmm. and different redshifts. But we found that um, they don't quite agree as well in terms of the stellar mass growth. Oh. But there are reasons by this. So I looked at a couple of different uh, studies. So a couple of studies, uh, they looked at. The merging potential of brightest cluster galaxies, essentially, but they also assume that half of the stellar mass is accreted onto the BCG from the companion galaxy, oh, okay. which is a fair enough estimate because mm-hmm. during these mergers, things get blown out. 
things get lost into the into the cluster. Okay, it's not or not all of the mass is added to the BCG during the merge, but we decided to have a look at the potential. So, how much could they potentially grow by if we, if all of the mass is added? So, with some of these studies, they only had a photometric 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 redshift. Yeah. So that a lot of these studies only had photometric redshifts that and is... just applied some correction to mm-hmm. it to like make a it a bit tricky. better. Yeah, I have never I have to confess that I have never trusted that much photometric redshift but again yeah, I'm it's... coming from a spectroscopy so yeah, it's it's <laughs> it's very very hard. So these these studies they put on a a, a contamination constraint. Oh, not so much contamination constraint but a a, a contamination factor mm-hmm. to kind of bring it down to a more desirable level. So all of those growths were within two sigma, which is a, a uncertainty term. We, we like to aim for at least one sigma of agreement. So they were a bit a bit out of agreement with ours. To notice the difference between astrophysicists and theoretical physicists or particle physicists. When they're doing an announcement in the Large Hadron Collider, mm. they need at least five Sigma what? to be convinced that that is actually real, but here sometimes we are moving in the one sigma, we just want two one. sigma, Maybe two. two sigma. Um, being conservative many times, particularly when uh, remember doing the measurements of emission lines, that again you have this kind of problem. Mm. How much? How accurate is that? If you are not having at least two, uh, two to two and a half sigma, uh, but anyway. It, it it is the way it is because it is the amount of data that we have and the the depth that we are getting with those. So that's right. But it does agree quite well with two other studies where they actually contained. They're not contained. These two other studies that agree with what we found in this project, they searched through their groups and clusters identified their close companions based on their projected separation, so the 50 kiloparsecs or 30 kiloparsecs mm-hmm. some of them did it for. But they also investigated visually for signs of merging. Uh-huh. So morphological distortions. Yes. So if you see like long tails or a, a galaxy shells. looks a bit... Your shells uh-huh. or a galaxy looks a bit wobbly or something. So signs that these things are actually merging already, which I'm sure all of you will will agree that means it must be a true close companion <laughs> galaxy. <laughs> it's, it's already in the process of merging. It must be It must be one. So that's why those ones agree quite well with ours because we have that very specific spectroscopic constraints on our close companion galaxy. So it's a better estimate and more robust constraint on these hmm. uh, close companion galaxies, which is really nice. And we also found a really good agreement with models too. Mm-hmm. Like really good agreement. So I don't know what was going on when I first started learning about this, being like, there's no dis- there's no agreement at all. And it's like, okay, no, apparently it does agree. <laughs> cool. Well, okay, that's good. That's good. Yes. So that that's it. So essentially, BCGs have the potential to grow by about 5% of their stellar mass per giga per year, year per... from a redshift of 0.23. Okay, the stellar mass growth is dominated by major mergers. And I know I didn't mention a lot about the dependence on the environment, because I didn't want to go on for too long. But uh, just as a note, we didn't find any statistically significant results in terms of that. On the environment. Okay, that on is the also interesting. Mm. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, we have agreement with the growth predicted by models. That's very good. Very so, good. Yes. Good. So my question for you after all this uh, huge work, um, 
because that is for your honor thesis. Mm -hmm. Are you going to publish this? I think I will. I hope you do. Yes, yes. My supervisor has asked me, look, if you're if you're up to it, we could put this into a paper and publish it. And I think I, w I would like to. I'm really proud of what I've done over the last five months. I think, I think you should. I think you should because there are plenty of very interesting things in there and it is uh, definitely a quality for a research paper. Mm, you will see that it will be... It will be not a copy and paste from your thesis. Oh, certainly there not. Plenty of things. Definitely that not copying and pasting 120 pages. I, I, I know, I know, but there are many things that you have to explain there in your thesis that you usually just something just, just that you have discussed. You have discussed there in five, ten pages, and it is only one line in exactly. the research paper because yep. it is uh, the way we do it. But here you have to. Uh, you have to explain with with a bit more detail. Exactly, like you have to you have to explain the entire the entire background and what I like. My my abstract is a full page, whereas the abstract in the paper would be a paragraph. A paragraph at around eight to ten lines. Something exactly. Like that. Exactly. Even the background information. So let's see. Where's my contents page? Oh. So the background information is about fifteen pages. By itself, yeah. and then so that the, that is just that's way too. That much is going to be your introduction for your paper. That typically, if if it is a page on total, it is a good thing. Mm. Plus, the people who are reading these sorts of papers are other experts, mm -hmm. and they know. In general, so so you, only, you have to include the very key things and provide the references. Yes. To previous work, and then you go from there and you present what you have done, and you, you even don't have to discuss that much about the gamma data because they have been explained many times in mm. different papers. So you reference those papers, and then you just go directly to your results and discussion sections. That's right. And conclusions, of course. That of course. is where you discuss and you provide and you give the summary of what you have done. Yeah. Very good. Yes, so that that's been me for the last nine months. That is great. And, uh, uh, and I'm sure I'll, I'll I'll let you guys know if when the paper's coming out. Don't don't hold out for it. Don't hold your breath because you'll be holding your breath for a while. Like these mm -hmm. things do take time. Uh, but uh, I will definitely update when it's available. Yeah, that's good. Great, great to hear that, Kirsten. I'm thinking now. Okay, when it is the next? Uh, I'm expecting. I was expecting to publish a paper full first author paper in 2019 and because of circumstances I'm not going to do it but definitely I should do something like that the next time I'm publishing a first author paper mm. hmm. so that is in the to-do list for next year yes okay? <laughs> I mean not finishing the paper that I really want to have the final draft before the, the end of the year <laughs> <laughs> but uh, telling it here in the sky in this. that's right so there we go. We've we've done. We've, it's been a big episode, but it's now time to finish on what's up. What's up? What's up? Yes, that is back to me. And I was quickly checking um, before Kirsten arrived, and we were having all the craziness with the <coughs> equipment. Anyway, um, what interesting objects could be discussing today for what's up? Um, did you know us? Uh, we have been introducing uh, a particular object that we're inviting you to have a look to it. Usually it is a relatively bright object of an interesting object, um, sometimes from the northern hemisphere, sometimes from the southern hemisphere, but, you know, inviting to know a bit more about this. And for today's episode, I have decided to have a look to Rigel, of how I learned it when I was a kid, Rigel. 
<laughs> so many different pronunciations of yeah. Rigel, Rigel, yeah, we Rigel. Have, we, we have to check uh, in, in YouTube the pronunciation of this in, in English. Anyway, so uh, probably you know that that is one of the brightest stars in the sky, actually the seventh brightest star in the night sky uh, in the constellation of Orion. It is one of the feet of Orion the Hunter. Rigel, Rigel in Spanish, is diametrically opposed to the other very bright star, Betelgeuse. And they are very different because Betelgeuse is a super red giant, but Rigel, it is very blue. It is a massive blue super giant that has a luminosity between 6200 and 360,000 times the luminosity of the sun. What? Yeah. I it, thought you were going to say like numbers in like ergs per second or something. Nah, nah, no, nah, that's nah, actually nah. solar luminosity. Holy moly. It is a moly. solar luminosity. It's just that. That's a bright star. But it is located 860 light years away. Oh, okay. That makes sense. And that is why it doesn't seem that bright. But if that star where, where bigger is... Mm -hmm. I don't know. I should, so I should do the calculation, bright. but it would be absolutely crazy. Probably we, even we will be able to see it during the day. It will be very, 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 very bright. Um, so it's the contrast between Betelgeuse and Rigel. It is something that I like a lot. And it was something that helped me when I moved to Australia to properly identify the Orion constellation <laughs> because it is a bit symmetrical. Mm. Seen from the northern hemisphere, Betelgeuse it is up and Rigel is in the bottom. If we are observing it from the southern hemisphere, it is the other way around. Yes, Rigel yeah. it is up. He's had a few too many drinks. And Betelgeuse it is in the in the in in the bottom part. And the first time I looked at it, I said, "What? What has happened? What has <laughs> happened here?" No, wait. And also the the stars of the uh, Orion Belt and in the other direction. So in the step they're of, tilted the wrong way. Tilted in the wrong way. I said, oh wait, because we are in in the southern hemisphere, meaning that okay, they are in the wrong way. But yep. for a moment, the perspective um, changes. The perspective changes. Yeah. So it is a very interesting object to observe. It's also a variable star, and I uh, have a very interesting fact around here because it actually has a companion. And that is what I was going to tell you, that it was a surprise that I forgot. And when I was reading the information about Rigel, I found that interesting. With a good telescope, you can actually see the companion. Oh, really? It is only 9.5 seconds away. That's not too So bad. it is not that far. And the apparent magnitude for this companion, Rigel V, it is uh, 6.7 okay. in magnitude. So significantly Less bright. Yeah, 400 times fainter than mm. the, the primary. But at the same time, that star has two stars. The Wait. companion has two stars. Wait, what? The companion has component B and component C. Wait, 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 wait. So you have, you have Rigel. Rigel. The companion is double. So it has two little stars there that can be resolved in very, very large telescopes. Wait, so is that three or four stars? No, I'm not finishing here. What? Because the brightest of the two stars that makes the companion to Rigel no. is actually a spectroscopic binary. <laughs> so we have actually have there not one, so one, two, three, four stars. So that is Rigel. Rigel VC, 
And then a companion on that. And then royal V have VA and VB. Because that's the spectroscopic. Because Whoa. they're spectroscopic. What a uh, star system. It is very crazy star system huh? So that we find there. That is wild. And the last thing I would like to mention about uh, Rigel, it is that the very intense light that Rigel emits is reflecting in a nebula that is around that area. It is a relatively long nebula mm. that you need long exposures in photograph for, for getting it. Um, it is crossing between Orion and Eridanus, the mm -hmm. river that is the, yep. the limit or the border of these two constellations around there. And that is the reflection nebula IC2118 that can be connected with the episode of Halloween astronomy because it is nicknamed the Witch Head Nebula. <laughs> of course it is. <laughs> Someone says that there is, it has a shape of you know, the silhouette of a witch with a long ah. nose. I don't see it there, but anyway, um, you don't see. You see here the kind of a witch with the I nose. Think, oh, no, this way. Yeah, the other way around. Yeah, so ah, yeah, exactly. That is ah. the other way around. I was seeing it the <laughs> other way around. Yeah, there it is. It's a bit of fantastic object. That's very so, cool. There we go. So we have the nice easy object for your naked eye and mm -hmm. you can try to see the double star, the companion with a small amateur telescope. But if you are even a very keen astrophotographer and you have um, the capacity of getting long exposures of this region of the sky, you will also be able to get this very nice reflection nebula. Yes, excellent. What a, oh, I'm just so happy. <laughs> we, we did it. We're back for our first episode, episode three, uh, season three. Yay. Yay. Episode number 28, mm -hmm. but the first one on the season, season three. three. And we will try to keep continually doing this every two weeks. Yes. Hopefully. Yes. yes. Although we are recording here and there and we have a Christmas break, but we will not disappoint you. We will we not. Will, we will be here. We are back. Don't forget. Don't forget to send us all of your feedback. Give us questions. Remember, yeah. we are we are active on Twitter. I know it may not seem like that so much on the Scientist Twitter account, but Angel and I are both very active on our own Twitters as well. Definitely. That reminds me that we actually had some few comments in, in the last few months that we have to dig, and we should try to answer those in the next episode. Yes, excellent. So we, we will get back to answering questions. So send us your questions, no matter what they are. If you think it's a stupid question... It's not. The only the, the, what I always say, and it only really applies to tour groups or anything like that, is the only stupid question is a question that's asked twice. <laughs> I usually say they're not a stupid question. They might be a stupid answers, but they're <laughs> not a stupid question. So just go ahead and ask. That's good. I like that one too. Remember that you can always find us in Twitter and Facebook at the Scientists. And we have a Gmail address at thescientist at gmail.com. Yes, yeah, so that's us for this episode. We'll see you soon. Okay. Yay! Talk to you soon. Bye-bye.